Well, this morning we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Take out your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and find chapter 1. We are still there. Last week we began our series together. We're calling it The Story of Salvation. And we are going week by week through the Gospel of Luke, unpacking this amazing gospel and uh, today we're going in the second installment, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 5. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. I want you to think about it and uh, actually raise your hand if this is true of you. How many of you have ever gone through something in life that, you would exper- that you've experienced and you would describe it like some have described it over the centuries as a dark night of the soul? Can I see your hand? A dark night of the soul. You know, a dark night of the soul can be different for every one of us. It often comes from uh, a challenging experience. Rather, uh, it could come from any circumstance that uh, you find yourself in, whether it is uh, something that has happened specifically to you or somebody that you love. It could happen with uh, a situation in our church or, or whatever it might be. And it, it, it is a circumstance that brought you into what many people talk about as a dark night of the soul. What is that? It, it's, it's a time of just what feels like deep darkness. I don't know if you've ever uh, had that in your own spiritual life, but you found yourself just feeling like you're going through this season that feels so weighty, and yet you don't somehow see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's, you, you, you have faith that it will come, you're, you're trusting that it will come, but, but, but it's still very dark. And this morning, we've opened our Bibles to Luke's gospel, and we're going to examine a situation of God's people. And as we examine what's happening in the life of Israel, we discover that they as well had been in a night of spiritual darkness. It had been a long night. In fact, there had been no prophetic word from God to his people in over 400 years. Now, that's a long time. Anybody know what happened 400 years ago? There's a lot that's transpired in 400 years. Let me give you a date. The Mayflower set sail in 1620, all right? So just picture in your mind's eye how long that is. And how many things in the life of human history have happened since that moment? And the same was true in this day, that for 400 years, God is silent. God is silent. And we see that just as darkness is deepest just before the dawn, those 400 years had been some very dark days in the nation of Israel. The nation had sunk into a deep apostasy. They had rejected God, they had rejected his truth, and instead they had uh, adopted some form of legalistic, ritualistic, self-righteous religion. The scriptures portray it this way, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, the people did not submit to God's righteousness. Rather, they just persisted in their own way. 
They, they, they did what they wanted. In fact, in the Old Testament, God had sent them after the post-exilic period as God's people make their way back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the city and the walls and the temple. It was no time at all before the people turned again against God. They went off in hypocrisy on their own way. They, they began doing their own thing. And over these 400 years where God is silent... The nation is just sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into this apostasy. And in the last book of the Old Testament concludes with a promise. Malachi talks about that there would dawn a new day where the sun of righteousness would arise and dispel the spiritual darkness that God's people were living in. And that the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world, would come. And that in the coming of the Messiah, that there would be one who would go in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so if you remember last time as we've opened uh, the Bible to the Gospel of Luke, Luke is writing this Gospel to the most excellent Theophilus. You can see that in verse 3. He's writing to this high-ranking Roman official to give him an understanding of Christianity. Uh, he is intrigued by the faith, and Luke tells him that he is going to give him this orderly account, Lotus in your Bible in verse 4, so that he might have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. And so Luke begins the story. He, he begins now in verse 5 is really the first story of his gospel. And Luke here, the first thing he wants to communicate to Theophilus is he's reminding him that God is going to dawn a new day. That there is this new day that will come and it is marked by the arrival of two boys, two children. One, the forerunner of the Messiah and the other, the Messiah himself. So let's start, just read the story with me this morning. Beginning in verse 5, the Bible tells us, notice the very first phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. Now, the Bible sets the stage with this king, Herod. He is really a proud king. If, in fact, if you remember anything about Bible times, you'll know that in this particular period that Israel is being occupied by the Roman government. The Romans had uh, gone through and had really built this massive empire in what was known as the Pax Romana. It was known as the Peace of Rome. However, Rome did not acquire any of these things peacefully. And Rome ruled in this empire, and here is where Israel finds itself. Herod is, in a sense, king of the Jewish people, although he himself was not a Jew. And yet he was somehow popular with the Jewish people. Uh, we're told that, 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 that twice he had lowered the taxes. How many of you think if someone lowers taxes, that's a great way to get endured to the people? Can I see your hand? How many of you would love taxes lowered, right? So, so here he does that. He, he lowers taxes. And then even at one time in a great severe famine, Herod had sold articles and melted down articles of gold in his temple to be able to buy food for the people. He had really in many ways endured himself to the Jewish people, although he himself was not a Jew. And there were Jewish people that began to rally around it and form this pro-Herod political party. We know it today as the Herodians. You'll read about it in the scriptures. And yet, in spite of all of his political favor, what we discover as we read the accounts of history that Herod had a very dark and sinister side to him. He was a merciless tyrant. He was jealous 
and incredibly jealous. He was exceptionally paranoid that someone would usurp his power and authority, that someone would rise above him on the throne. And so what Herod does is because of his jealousy and because of his fear and because of his paranoia, he kills anyone and everyone that he thinks is a threat to his throne. And you can just discover that his viciousness as a king is seen in the murder of one of his nine wives, along with her brother, his mother-in-law, and it even leads to the murder of three of his sons. It was said that it was far safer to be Herod's pig than it was Herod's son, if that gives you any picture of what he was like as a ruler. He was, as someone said, to the Jews what Nero was to the Romans. And here is Herod, ruling as king of Judea. Luke tells us, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And so here is Herod ruling and reigning in this day, in this day, this dark day in the nation of Israel, where there had been no prophetic word of God to his people in over 400 years. This dark day where, where it seemed as if God was silent. This dark day where there was so much political chaos. I mean, really, as I was studying it this week, it doesn't sound too far removed from life in the 21st century, does it? And some of you are here this morning and you're just looking at the news or you read the news. And the question that I think is on many of our minds this morning is, is God anywhere in any of this? Is God anywhere? Where is God? in all that we read and we see and we hear about. Is God anywhere in any of this? And the answer is, yes. I'm not too sure. The answer is what? Yes. Yeah. God is working. Turn to your neighbor this morning and tell him, God is working. God is working. God is not surprised by the events you read about or heard about in the news this week. So as we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke wants us to remember that although this is a dark day in the life of Israel, no matter how dark it seems, God has not abrogated his throne. God is still working. You remember the vision that Jeremiah saw of the potter at his wheel and he sees that the potter's still there? Here's the thing this morning, my friend. Just look right up here. God is still working. God is still working. Even in a day where we look out and we wonder that. Even in a moment in time where things seem so dark, we discover that God is still working to advance his purposes. God is still working to advance his, uh, his, his plan in this world. And he does it in the most unlikely of ways. He does it oftentimes in the most uh, unique of circumstance. God comes to the most unique sometimes of individuals to further forward his purposes. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. We see the cast of characters here in Luke chapter 1. We read of Herod, but then continue reading with me. We not only see about Herod as this proud king, but secondly, we discover this humble priest. In verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named what? Zechariah. Zechariah was of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I mean, we read about this dark day in the nation of Israel, and as the story begins, and it talks about this priest named Zechariah, we begin to say, wait a minute, Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to stand out in this day. In, in, in the moment of all of the spiritual apostasy here, Zechariah and Sarah are, are, are a shining example of God's people. They are righteous before God. That does not mean they were perfect. It just means that they were blameless. They were walking in a way that God would have them to walk. They were obeying the commandments of God in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Everything in their life seems positive except for one thing. Look at verse 7. But they had no, what's the next word? Child. Here's the point of sorrow in the life of this couple. Out of all the things that on the surface would seem to be going well, there was one thing that really was a deep point of sorrow. For them, they had pled and pleaded with God for a child for many years. And their prayers had seemed to have gone unanswered. At the end of verse 7, we give the reason of why they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. You say, wow, how old were they? Well, when you read this story, it kind of echoes a story in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Any of you think of the story that it's echoing in the Old Testament? Abraham and Sarah. And when we say, well, Abraham and Sarah were pretty old. In fact, as, as Paul was talking about Abraham and, and not being able to have children, the Bible talks about Abraham in this stage that, that, that he considered his own body to be as good as dead. You say, how old is that? Well, as good as dead. <laughs> how old do you have to be to be considered as good as dead? I don't know. But, 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 but here, here Zacharias says, I'm old and she's older. They were barren. And, and this was a deep frustration in their life. I wonder if you could just put yourself in their sandals just a moment in their sheer sorrow of wanting children, the deep frustration, this painful, what felt like ever-present despair. And it was compounded with a social stigma because they were living in a culture that would have viewed them as somehow there was sin in their lives that had withheld God's blessing. And certainly this would have been true for both of them, but certainly Elizabeth would have felt this. She would have lived in a society among all of these women with this social stigma of not having children. I wonder what she must have felt you often have to wonder how many private tears did she shed? How many public snares did she endure? And now she's at the age of a grandma and she doesn't have any child of her own. And everything that she had prayed for, everything she had sought God about, everything she had believed in, it's all just a dream that feels like it's just fallen apart. It's a point of sorrow. You know, I find it interesting as I was looking at this passage this week that all of us have points of sorrow in our life, don't we? We all have something. We all have something in our life that reminds us of just how broken this world is. And for Zachariah and Sarah, they were, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were facing in this moment 
these feelings of hopelessness. I mean, really, humanly speaking, he's old and she's older. Which of your grandparents you know that are having children nowadays? Things looked hopeless. And Zechariah is a priest. He, he's a priest. What does a priest do? He represents God to the people. He, he is teaching the commandments of the Lord. He's interpreting the scriptures. He's judging the people. And then as a priest, he's bringing the people to God. He's, he's, uh, he's, 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 he's offering sacrifices in the temple. And, and, and there was many priests. You know, We don't really understand this, but in that day in the nation of Israel, uh, Bible scholars says there was many as 18,000 priests. And so all of these different priests and all these outlining villages would have this opportunity two times a year for a whole week to go to the temple at Jerusalem, and there they would work in their priestly service at the temple. And so this story picks up with Zechariah in his week of service. Notice verse 8. We'll continue the story. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, by like a rolling of a dice, to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, this is what happened. Priests would come from all of these outlining villages. They would come to the temple and they would roll dice. They would roll lots to determine each person's priestly role for that week. What was the way in which they would serve there in the temple? And Zechariah gets the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He gets the opportunity to go into the temple there into the holy place, right before the veil of the holies of holies, and there would have been the altar of incense, and Zechariah would burn this altar of incense that represented the prayers of God's people. And as he entered into that temple, remember, the temple symbolized a place of God's presence. It symbolized a place of God's power and just where God dwelled. And so in that holy of holies, and so Zechariah is getting literally about as close to God as he can. He's going there in the temple to offer this incense. Notice verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him what? What shows up? Say it louder. An angel. And what does Zechariah do? What does he do? What everybody else does when they see an angel. What did he do? He trembles. He falls at him, upon him. Verse 12. But the angel said unto him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For, I, for your prayer has been heard. Isn't that interesting? God speaks to us often in the most unlikely of places. Often what feels like an obscure thing. I actually thought about this week as you look back over the course of the scriptures and you think about how God speaks to people. It's often not when we're expecting it. You know, a lot of us expect for God to speak in certain moments, and then there's other moments of our life where we're just going about our day and living our life. And actually, as you study the scriptures, you'll find that, well, David and Moses were both on the backside of a wilderness tending uh, livestock, and God speaks to them. God comes to Gideon in a wine press. God comes across Peter as he's mending his nets there on the seashore and God speaks to him. And I, I find it here interesting. It's just in the ordinary events of life that, that God's spirit will come and he will speak. And here God sends a messenger, this angel, to Zechariah right in the temple. Notice what happens. Continue reading. And he said unto him, do not be afraid. This is the common response you see in every time somebody meets an angel. 
there is this sheer terror of what you are experiencing, seeing. And the angel says, fear not, Zechariah. I have some amazing news. And he tells him about the announcement of a birth. He tells him about the announcement of a son. He says in verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. The word John means Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. Notice verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, the angel says, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great among the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink for he will be filled with the spirit even from his mother's womb. He was to take on this Nazarite vow. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Just look right up here. Wow. How amazing is that? But notice Zechariah's response, verse 18. He says to Gabriel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man And my wife is advanced in years. I'm old, she's older. I want you to think about this for a second. How often does the promise of God go out in our life in moments where God clearly says something or he reminds us of something and we are so quick to give all the reasons of why it is absurd? Don't we? Come on now. How how many of us, God's spirit clearly prompts us, leads us, speaks to us by his word, through his spirit, and we say, oh, that's kind of, I don't know about that. I think I need some more information. I think I need more of a sign. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? And notice how he answers. Verse 19, the angel said unto him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And Zechariah is going, no, but I think I need a little more information. I think I need a sign. What? An angel of God is standing right before you. And he says, I need more. I, Gabriel is indignant. I, I found this interesting this week. Gabriel goes and grows indignant at Zechariah. Notice how he says in verse 19, and Zechariah is like, I I need more. And he's like, I am Gabriel. And I was sent here by God for this purpose. And notice what happens. He says, I stand in the presence of God. And, And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. My friends, how many of us as Christians, in the moments of the dark night of our soul, do we begin questioning God as to whether or not he's true to his promises? I believe that when God's spirit speaks, you know it. But some of us want to act like we don't know it. Some of us want to act like we didn't hear, or we didn't hear as well. And so we say, well, could you just give me another sign? And Gabriel's like, I stand in the presence of God. I'm here. What more do you want? Right? Really. And he just, I love it. The angel grows indignant. And notice what he says to Zechariah. He shuts his mouth. Some of us think that God doesn't know our situation. Some of us think that if God knew where we were at or what we are feeling or 
what we're experiencing that somehow his promises need more. Can I tell you this morning, God's not unaware. Turn to your neighbor and tell him this morning, God's not unaware. God is not unaware. But somehow all of us have been guilty of this at one time or another. God will speak and we refuse to answer. We, we, he speaks and we refuse to believe. And we somehow can fashion all of these excuses and reasons as to why we need more evidence for what God is saying. When we know very clearly that God has spoken. And so notice in verse 20, Gabriel, he grows indignant. He shuts Zechariah's mouth. Behold, verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words. God didn't shut his mouth. An angel did. Now, can I ask you a question? You say, Pastor, what is this? A divine timeout. Any of you parents ever give one of these to your children? Go sit in your room. I don't want to hear anything out from you for 10 more minutes. Then we'll talk. The angel says, time out, nine months. Really what he says. For nine months, Zachariah can't hear. He can't speak. He's deaf. He's mute. Why? The Bible says the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. God is loving Zechariah in this moment. It doesn't feel like it, but it is. You say, why is God doing this? Because Zechariah, his heart is full of doubt. I mean, he's a priest of the people of God, for goodness sake. If anyone in the nation of Israel is to believe an angel, if anyone in the nation of Israel is to believe the Lord speaking in his own temple, should it not be this priest? And he doesn't believe God. There's doubt in his heart. And Zechariah is thinking about his past. He's thinking about his, their infertility. He's thinking about all the challenges. And in his heart, he thinks that somehow that exceeds the power of God. Instead of looking to the Lord in faith, instead of hearing this angel's message and just in awe of believing. Zechariah doubts, and he begins to look at himself. He looks at his wife. He looks at their age, and he says, yeah, but this is really impossible. Can I ask you a question, my friend, this morning? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is God's arm in any way shortened that he cannot reach? Is God's arm in any way shortened that he cannot save? No. And, 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 if, and, if, and if Zechariah would have just believed what God had done in the Old Testament, if he would have thought about what God had done to someone like Abraham and Sarah, if, God would have thought, if, if, I, if Zechariah would have thought of the ways that God had worked in the past, he, would hard, he probably would have responded in a different way. But, but here he doubts the Lord. You know, it's easy for us to come to this point in the Bible and just really be hard on Zechariah. But the fact is we really need to shift the story from this king to this priest to this couple to this angel and then we need to kind of look at ourselves. Can I ask you a question? Are you quick to believe God in his promises? Are you quick to put your faith in what he has given you? 
Or do you find yourself like Zachariah, questioning, wanting more, wanting more of a sign, when God has so clearly given it to you? Well, what do we discover? Well, it's a unique time there at the temple. Just follow with me a second here. Picture what this must be like. Zachariah is in the temple. It's taking much longer than usual. All the people are outside praying before the temple, right? And they're starting to look at one another because someone's like taking a long time, right? You know, anybody like been praying in public and someone's like, look up and they're like, how long is this? So, but the people don't know what's going on, right? People don't know. Finally, Zechariah comes out of the temple and they're all hounding him with questions. And what can he do? <laughs> I'm limited this morning to, to put it into words because I don't have any, right? He can't speak. He doesn't know sign language. I mean, could you imagine trying to like tell people what you saw? And then even more what he said? And then he gets back home because Elizabeth's still at home. So he goes back, walks in the door. Elizabeth, hey, Zach, glad you're home. Just silence. Okay, well, he is old. Maybe he's deaf. Hey, Zach, how was the week? Comes in from the other room, puts his bags down. Well, come on, baby, how was it? I, did he tell her about the baby right then and there? I mean, did he go up to her stomach and start, come on now. I mean, ladies, if your husband came to you and started making this motion with your belly, what would you say is Elizabeth, right? You'd be like, <laughs> come on. I mean, just come on. You've got to read between the lines here. This isn't, but, but, but he comes back, and for nine months he cannot talk. For nine months he cannot hear. Until when? Until when? Birth of the baby. And all this joy. God taught Zechariah a lesson that day. In fact, I think the story of Zechariah, you say, why is this in the scriptures? Well, a couple reasons. I think it serves for us a reminder that there's only one of two options for responding to the promises of God. One is a heart of faith that believes the Lord. I remember Harold Vaughn used to say, God's greatest delight is to be believed. We either believe the promises of God or we doubt the promises of God. But I think this story is here in Luke's gospel because Luke has given it to Theophilus because he wants this Roman official to know how God works in his world and that God works in miraculous ways and he works in the miraculousness of two of these births, the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist, and as we'll read in a few weeks, the birth of the Messiah. Because here's this Roman official that I'm sure would find it very challenging to believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this teacher who was sentenced to this cruel Roman cross, was in fact the Son of God. And, and Luke is writing this gospel to help him understand that this is God's world. He works in his world. He works in these prophetic ways. God works in the orchestration of circumstances that when everything seems dark, that God is still working. 
Like he is working to further his purposes. And God is always at work. So this morning, I want to leave you with that reality. That no matter how dark the days, no matter the point of deepest sorrow in our life, the Almighty God is still at work. And He's at work in the lives of His children. And He's furthering His purposes in this world. And our attitude can be one of two things. We can choose to believe it, trust it, or we can doubt it. I pray you'll believe it. I pray that the truth of God and the reality of who He is becomes an anchor in your dark night of the soul. I know if I could take the time, and I won't this morning, to talk about how in my life I have found that to be true so many times. That God, in moments where it feels so dark, there's this reality that He's still there. And although you can't picture and explain how He's working, we by faith believe that He's working, and our faith is in Him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray right now for this congregation, those who are listening with us online. We pray, Lord, for each of them. I don't know the situation in their life. I don't know the circumstance of ways that we would tend to disbelieve you. Some of us want more answers, and you've given us so much, and yet we still doubt. I'm thankful that you have mercy with those who doubt. You had mercy with Zechariah. But God, your greatest delight is to be believed. And I pray this morning that in some really dark night situations where some people in here just feel so in despair, this soul-crushing frustration of just nothing's going to move, it seems hopeless. Lord, to remind them that nothing is hopeless. Oh, you have plans and purposes. Uh, your arm is not too short. There's a story here of your miraculous hand at work, and we believe you still do those things. So give us faith. Give us faith to believe you as you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.